Before we pray, I want to re- reprise a story that my friend Melchizedek Panaya found in the news. BBC carried this kind of a sad story. It has a nice ending to it. But Gaza, you know that little piece of territory right beside Israel, also along the Mediterranean. There's a zoo in Gaza City called Maraland Zoo. A menagerie of animals that they've been able to smuggle in through tunnels to that tiny little zoo. But tragedy struck the zoo earlier this year when the most popular animals in the zoo, the two zebras, both zebras died. Yeah, it was, a, it was just a letdown for the children of Gaza City. And the owner of Maraland Mara Zoo, Mohammed Barguthi, is beside himself. What am I going to do? To get another zebra, a live zebra, through the tunnels, smuggled in, would cost him $40,000 for just one zebra. There's no way I can afford that. But the children are heartbroken. We have no zebras in the zoo. They used to ride the zebras. One day, suddenly, the light bulb went off in his mind, and he hurried down to the, to the marketplace in Gaza City. According to the BBC, he asked for some masking tape. He bought it. Found some black hair dye. He bought it. Went to a painting store. Bought a nice paintbrush. Went back and under the cover of dark, so that nobody would know, he worked his art. He wondered when the sun comes up, what will this look like? Will it be so obvious that every child will know? And when the sun came up, there in the corner of his zoo was this picture. Two zebra, wannabes. Those are white female donkeys. White female donkeys who have been meticulously paint-jobbed into looking like zebras. Isn't that something? Let me just put the next picture up. You, you, look at it. I mean, how do you know? How do you know? The big question, of course, is will the children like the zebras or will they smell a fake? Next picture. They love the zebras. They don't know that they're not zebras. They're riding donkeys, but they're happy to have zebras back in the zoo. Now, I want to to hold that picture on the screen just for a moment, please. Those are two donkeys imitating a zebra. Now, in defense of the donkeys, you need to understand this was not their idea. All right? (laughs) Two donkeys imitating a zebra because, let's face it, you can take this imitation thing a bit too far at times, can't you? I mean, wouldn't you feel foolish being a donkey and trying to look like a zebra? I must warn you that what you are about to read may feel like it's taking this imitation thing a bit too far. Resist that inner impulse to write it off. Hear the word out. Listen carefully. Because I am hoping and praying, and I have been much before this particular teaching, that instead you will recognize in this imitation invitation God's call to you right now, right now, at this moment in your journey. Let's pray together. Oh God, it's the last thing we want to be, a bunch of donkeys imitating a zebra. What's up with this? Please, dear God, make it clear And may we not be the same ever again because of what you will say in Holy Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to take a look at a new and stunning command. It's new because you and I have never read these words together ever in my recollection. And it's stunning because it assumes that the command can be followed. So take a look at this. Will you pull your Bible out? Pull your Bible out and turn to the New Testament, a little prison epistle by the name of Ephesians. Find Ephesians. If you didn't bring a Bible today, you have to see this with your own eyes. Pull the Pew Bible out. And if you will turn to page 788 in your Pew Bible, you will come to Ephesians chapter 5. We're looking at the first verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. I'll be in the New International Version. Any translation you have is fine with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writing, Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children. 
Imitate God. That's exactly what he has just said. Imitate God, will you? It's interesting, that Greek word for be imitators. The Greek word is mimetes. From whence comes our word mimic. Yeah. Mimic God as dearly loved children. And by the way, who does mimicking better than children? Didn't you learn this early on in life? I know you did. You're going to act like you didn't, but I know you did it. You learned, you learned early on that the best way to drive your little sister or your little brother to, brother to utter distraction is to mimic him, mimic her, every word, every gesture, every intonation. You just parrot it back. Boom, 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 boom. Until finally in tears, they go running off to mom. Didn't you do that? You did it. I know you did. Feels kind of foolish even thinking about those days, doesn't it? But nobody is better than mimicking than children. So Paul seizes his children's reality and he turns it into a stunning adult command. Hey, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And, verse 2, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to Christ. Can you believe that? Imitate God. Mimic Him. Are you kidding me? Me mimicking God? That would be like a donkey trying to be a zebra. That is humanly impossible. I mean, remember the last time we were together? This is the being. Are you talking about the Almighty God I'm supposed to mimic? The Almighty? This is the being who presides over 47 billion light years of a universe wide. I'm supposed to mimic Him. And a whisper comes back. Yes, you are. I want to share with you seven, count them, seven Imitation invitations in Holy Scripture. And I wish you'd jot all seven down. Pull out your study guide right now. Let's take a look at these. What does it mean to imitate God? Here, are, here they are, seven of them. Reach into your uh, worship bulletin. Pull out your brand new study guide for today. We've got friendly ushers, by the way, who are about to come your way. If you didn't get a study guide or several of you came with one bulletin, hold your hand up all the way to the balcony. And I want to say to those of you watching in Overflow, we're delighted that you're here. Make sure you get the study guide. You're going to want these seven. Make sure you get a study guide. And join us. And those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. Let me put our website on the screen for you so that you can go get the same study guide. Put it on the screen. You see it there? www.pmchurch.tv pmchurch.tv You're looking for this series called The Temple. This is part nine. By the way, it wraps up in two sessions. We're over. We're out of here. The semester has flown by. But you're looking for the particular teaching today, the fourth temple. We'll figure out what the fourth one is next week. The fourth temple, the last imitation. The series is the temple. The last imitation. And right there you'll see study guide. Click on. You'll have the same study guide as us. So let's go. You got your, your study guides here? Everybody's got them? Let's go. Let's just fill that verse in. Make sure we have it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Please fill it in. Be imitators of God. Greek, memetes. Mimic. All right, seven. Now, seven imitation invitations in Holy Scripture. Keep your pen moving. Here we go. Imitation invitation number one. God speaking. Be holy as I am holy. I was moved by our our praise time this morning. And when we sang of holiness. Holiness. That isn't some little pipe dream that somebody thought up. Well, we've got to find something for humans to do. That is God's desire. Be holy as I am holy. And by the way, he says that in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. And then Peter wants to repeat it in 1 Peter chapter 1, 16 and 17. So it's Old Testament, New Testament. It, that command never, never goes away. Imitation, invitation number one, be holy as I am holy. Invi- imitation, invitation number two, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the Lord Jesus himself saying, hey... I want you to be perfect, just like your Father in Heaven is perfect. You know what? You're you're, you're really throwing me for a loop here, God. It's impossible. I can't be perfect. I can't be holy. Do you know who I am? He says, I know very well who you are. But I would not issue a command that could not be obeyed in my power. I would not issue. That would be absolute futility. I would only ask you to do what I can give you the power to do. Apparently, you can be holy. Apparently, you can be perfect. Luke comes along with the same sermon on the mountain. He says, let me, let me nuance that. And so here's imitation, invitation number three. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Be merciful. You know, be kind. Come on. Be compassionate. Be loving to people. Be nice. Imitation, 
Invitation number four. Train yourself to be godly. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Train yourself to be godly. What's it mean to be godly? Fill it in. Godlike. All godly is is an English abbreviation for godlike. Godlike is too long. It's easier to say godly. And so we get godly instead of godlike. But it means godlike. Be like God. Imitation, invitation. Be like God. Jot down this one. Imitation, invitation number five. You should follow in Christ's steps. Just stay right, be, stay right there. Stay right there. Imitate Him. Walk where He goes. Take His steps. That's number five. Number six is like it. That was in, uh, that was in 1 Peter 2. Number six is in 1 John 2. Walk as Jesus did. Walk as Jesus did. Just what Jesus does, you do. Where Jesus goes, you go. In fact, God's last generation on earth, hold on. Here comes imitation, invitation number seven. Watch this. Revelation chapter 14. They, the last generation of God's friends on earth, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Just stay on His trail. Follow Him. Can you believe it? There they are. Seven imitation invitations. You know what? Not only is it stunning for God to command me to imitate Him, what really begins to press hard is to realize how He wants me to imitate Him. I mean, come on. Time time out, God. What is this about holy? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people full of unclean lips. You can't ask me to be holy. You must be mistaken. But he wouldn't ask me to do what I could not do through his empowerment, would he? Be perfect, imperfect me, merciful, unmerciful me, godly, ungodly me. Do you hear how I talk sometimes? Do you know how I think sometimes? You don't mean me, do you? Yep, you. Follow in the steps of Christ. Walk where Jesus walked. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I don't know about you, but you can read this list and... Who could blame us if after reading it we concluded, I'll never make it. I'll just never make it. But apparently, Paul assumes that you will. He writes it into his letter. Please, be imitators, therefore, of God. Apparently, the apocalypse assumes there will be a generation at the end of time who will mimic, who will imitate God. Wow. Read it again. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, talking about the cross, and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You know what? Just as Christ... the, the, The key to this has to be in that phrase, just as Christ. Just as Christ. Because in one breath, Paul breathes, he says, Hey, be imitators of God, therefore. And then in the very next breath, he says, just as Jesus did, just as Jesus loved, I want you to do the same. Apparently, the key is in that just as Christ loved. Apparently, jot this down, will you? Imitating God means becoming like Jesus. That's it. That must be what it means. Just be like Jesus. You want to imitate God? Be like Jesus. That's not really new. That's not really a novel thought, is it? No, come on. I've heard that all my life. In fact, I was telling the uh, House of Prayer worshipers Wednesday night that I grew up as a boy and I remember this. I remember my dad humming these words, whistling these words, singing these words around the house. My preacher dad. Be like Jesus, this my song. In the home. You ever hear, you ever hear that one? Come on, you know that one? You have to be a baby boomer to know that one, don't you? Sing it with me. Be like Jesus, this my song. In the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus, all day long. I will be like Jesus. Hey, apparently imitating God means simply to become like Jesus. Apparently it's possible because the last generation of his friends on earth are described as doing just that. They're like Jesus. I mean, didn't we just read that in Imitation 7? Let's put it back up on the screen. Imitation number 7. They, the last generation. This is 144,000. God's living friends at the end of time. They, the last generation of God's friends on earth, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now notice verse 5 of Revelation 14. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Fill that in. They are blameless. Following the Lamb and blameless. I'm telling you, that sounds an awful lot like being like Jesus to me. 
Seven imitation invitations. That means all of them have to be true about Jesus. Hold on. They not only have to be true about Jesus, they need to be true of the followers of Jesus too. Be holy. Was Jesus holy? Tell me yes or no. Check. Check. Jesus was holy. How about the followers of Jesus? Apparently, check, check. Be perfect. Was Jesus perfect? Is it possible for His followers to be perfect? Well, this says blameless. Sounds an awful lot alike to me. Check, check. Be merciful. Was Jesus merciful? But of course. Can His followers be? Apparently, check, check. Be godly. Was Jesus godly? But of course. Can His followers be godly? Check, check. Can you walk in the steps of Christ? Can you walk as Jesus did? Can you follow the Lamb wherever you go? Check, check, check. Apparently, it can be done in the power of Christ Himself. That's something. We've just kind of written all this off. It's, ah, can't really be done. No, apparently it can. Apparently God will have a generation of friends at the very end of time who will be just like His closest friends in sacred history. God's going to have some Enochs. God's going to have a whole lot of Enochs who are walking with Him. In fact, the last generation will be just like Enoch because they will walk with God. They, go through this, they will go through this huge defining crucible and they'll walk straight out of it without ever dying and walk with God into heaven just like Enoch did. Apparently he's going to have Enoch's. Apparently he's going to have Abraham's who, who lie like crazy but who grow in a relationship with him so that lying is dropped by the side and they become blameless. God says to Abraham in Genesis 17, hey boy, walk blameless before me. Apparently he's going to have Abraham. He's going to have Mary's who had this checkered scarlet past but who become known at last for their Passionate devotion to the Lord Jesus Himself. Apparently, there will be Daniels in politics who will live unflinchingly, boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, it's doable. At least that's what the Bible says. But why bring all of this up right now? I mean, come on, Dwight, please. I'll tell you why. There's an aspect of this teaching that we've been tracking this fall that I've not said a word about. But today's the time. I've been praying about this. God, please let it be clear. Just keep the, keep the boy out of the picture. You see, I want you to just think. Now, I need you to be thinking about as clearly as you have been thinking all morning long. And you're watching on television. I need you to think through this sequence of thoughts for a moment. You see, this teaching called the temple that we've been focusing on, this compelling Bible teaching that before, just before the return of Christ, Daniel 7, 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, describes how God's throne room, the temple above His throne room, is transformed into a courtroom and the books are opened. And judgment is convened just before the return of Christ. Now, if that teaching is true, and I believe that the Bible is true, then that means that that, that courtroom scene actually is... In, 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 in a nuanced way, a reflection of Yom Kippur, the cleansing of the earthly sanctuary. That's why we went to Leviticus 16. And if I understand Bible prophecy correctly, we're already in it. it has, the hour of His judgment has come. We are in it now. Right now. That means while we're sitting here enjoying praise music, celebrating with Carolina and her baptism, and little Landon Michael and his dedication... While we're in the thick of it, something's going on in the throne room, in the temple above. And evidentiary records are being examined, not for God to jog His memory, but for the celestial observers who gathered around to say, hey, listen, are you sure you're going to bring these people back? You're going to bring them into the kingdom? Can we just take another look at that record to make sure? It's not for God. He knows who are His. Apparently, ladies and gentlemen, that means that this hour we are living in, in history right now, is heavily fraught with quiet urgency. It can no longer be business as usual, morally speaking. It can no longer be business as usual, politically speaking, economically speaking, historically speaking. There's something happening to this planet that we have never seen before, and we can't, not the brightest minds in the world are able to understand why is it that we can't get a handle on anything? It's only melting down the more we do. Something's afoot. That means... Now, here's where I'm going. I need you really to hang on to this sequence of thought. That means that there will come a generation. There has to be. This is just logic. There will have to come a generation just before the return of Christ 
who will be alive and well going through everyday routines. There will be a generation in which time the courtroom above will push the last of the case histories and records of those who are deceased. And they will begin with those now who are alive. I mean, does that make sense? Do you think God's going to put the whole human race, hey, go to sleep, kill you for a while while I finish up this judgment? He's not going to do that. There will be people living at the return of Christ. That means that for those people, somebody will be getting to the record of Dwight's life while Dwight is living. Do you understand that it would be an anachronism of, of, of immense magnitude if while they're trying to cleanse the book above of Dwight's record of sins, Dwight just goes on sinning down here. It's no big deal. Come on, it's no big deal. I can do this. I mean, you know, come on. Grace, grace. No. Wake up, wake up. That means that I can't just treat this as, well, you know, easy come, easy go, maybe so, maybe not. No, I see, I see. No. Something, there will be a generation. And by the way, that will be only for the last generation. No other generation will experience this. Simultaneous cleansing, up and down. Same time as cleansing up there, same time as cleansing in here. Judicial cleansing, expunging the records above. Moral cleansing, expunging the sins Below. Same time. Simultaneously. Does that make sense? It just has to be. Now, I'm going to put some words on the screen that I have known about for years, but I have chosen never to bring them here in a worship setting. They're radical. But at, I believe the time is critical to ponder the implication of these words. They're from the apocalyptic classic, Great Controversy. Take a look. I'll put it on the screen for you. If you have them in your study guide, you'll need to fill it in. While the investigative judgment, that's what's going on in heaven right now, while the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent, that means just repentant people, penitent believers, are being removed from the sanctuary in heaven, there is to be a special work of purification, write this down, of putting away, of putting away of sin among God's people upon the earth. When this work shall have been accomplished, the followers of Christ will be ready for His appearing. Now, I'm going to give you five reasons why I have hesitated to ever quote those words in your presence. Five reasons. First of all, I don't especially relish the charge of being a sin-focused fanatic or legalist. I just soon live without that. Secondly, I recognize that it is a natural human tendency of our hearts to reject any call to put away personal sin and to resist any appeal to fully reject sinful behavior. Yeah, you're talking about my wife, aren't you? I knew you'd finally get to her. No, I'm talking about you. You're talking about my roommate, aren't you? No, I'm talking about you. You're talking about the worshiper in front of me. How about the one behind me? No, it's you I'm talking about, God says. The natural tendency is, yeah, it's not me. It's not me. Thirdly, I know my own heart and its propensities to evil. I know my own soul. Fourthly, I fear the extremism found in some circles where the eradication of sin has become the all-consuming focus of their communities. And I'm saying, don't ever let this community become like that. Such a natural hesitancy. And then finally, number five, I'm well aware that popular evangelical theology and aberrant former Adventist theology, I'm well aware that both theologies have myopically focused on coming, coming to the Christ of Calvary. They call that justification. And in the process have largely excluded growing in the Christ of Calvary. Growing. And they call that sanctification. They're focusing all on the beginning of the journey. Nothing about how this journey is supposed to end. Everything's right here at the beginning. And thus, largely, skillfully masking the biblical call to holiness to imitate God. 
I have hesitated for those five reasons to ever bring these words to you. But as your pastor, I am under deepening conviction that we in this community of faith cannot afford at the peril of our own souls to ignore the implications of the fact that the judgment is taking place right now. And because if it's just the judgment taking place, we're all fine. Hey, great. Taking place. High, high five. Good. You go, God. Keep it up. But if we go to the corollary, the twin, the twin teaching that is embedded in this shining Bible reality, if we go to the twin, then suddenly, oh boy, come on, stay out of this. Stay out of this. And what is it? What is this this that we're supposed to stay out of? Here it is. Here it is. We have got to get serious about overcoming sin in our lives right now. Say, what sin? All sin. All sin. We have got to get serious about through the power of the resurrected Christ finding the divine enabling to forsake sin. We have got to get serious about the grace of the sin-pardoning Savior to cleanse, to personally cleanse our hearts. You're saying, Dwight, man, you've turned this whole gospel thing into a self-focused works behavior. That's what's kept you and me from wanting to touch this, that very charge. I'm going to show you why it's not self-focused and it's not works behavior. The Apostle Paul, let me put this on the screen for you, 2 uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, dear friends. You need to scribble this down in your study guide, by the way. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. Let me just tell you something about that Greek word for purify. It's the identical word in the Greek Old Testament in Daniel 8:14. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's the word right there. Let us cleanse ourselves. It's the identical word in the Greek. Katharizo, catharsis, to cleanse. Same word. That's a judgment. That's a judgment. Appeal. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify. Let us cleanse ourselves. And by the way, who's doing the cleansing? Isn't that something? God, God will do the cleansing, but you have to do something. Oh, God, cleanse me, please. And I keep doing it. God's saying, what's up with this? No. You have to ask me. You, you let go. I'll take it. I'm not going to take it if you're not letting go. Oh, God, cleanse me. I let go. You can have it. That's the difference. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness. Apparently you can grow into this. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God, out of the fear of God. Jesus has all the power to pardon us and to empower us. We just have to, we have to, we have to go with Him. We have to follow where He walks. Stay in His steps. He will lead you to a life. He will lead you to a life of holiness, of moral blamelessness, of mercy. Follow Him. He'll lead you. Would you jot it down, please? The time has come, therefore, for us to forsake our known sins and imitate our God. That's it. That's the corollary teaching that nobody wants to touch. Embedded in this diamond. Embedded in the diamond. You say, hey, right, it says, forsake our known sins. What sins would those be? Let me tell you something, my friend. You are the only one who knows. Don't you ask me about your sins. You already know. You and God, that is. You and God have a very bright understanding of what your sins are. You already know. And by the way, if you don't know, if you don't know, you really need Jesus. You need the Savior. If you are saying to yourself, you know what, I just can't think of anything right now. I can't believe it. I've gotten to this place in my life. I can't think of a thing. My friend, then you must meet the Savior for He is the only one who can cure you of your moral blindness. If you're sitting here right now and saying, there is no sin in my life, no big deal, buddy. Work on the sinners here, will you? My friend, that's dangerous talk. The Pharisees were the same way. And they were lost. Unless they recognized, as Nicodemus did, a need for a Savior. It's the only way you get saved. 
you have to have a Savior. So if no sin has come into your mind right now, I'm going to give you a little something in just a moment that will perhaps help you. Let me put the words back up on the screen. Read them one more time in your hearing. Great Controversy, page 425. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification. There's that Day of Atonement language, cleansing. A special work. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. A special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people on earth. When this work shall have been accomplished, the followers of Christ will be ready for His appearing. So here's the deal. You want to know what this looks like? Let's go to the how-to real quick here. The how-to. And I'm indebted to my friend uh, Cliff Goldstein. He's a brilliant mind and he is a personal friend. In his book, False Balances, I've got to share this with you. Something I had never seen about Jesus before. Most of you haven't seen it either. First, what Cliff does in his book, he quotes 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Let's put it on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore... Since Christ suffered in his body, all right, that's physical suffering. King James says in his flesh, but we know it's the body. Since Christ suffered in his body, Peter says, hey, look, it. since Jesus did, you people arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Be willing to suffer in your body. What's going on here? Because she, he who has suffered in his body, in her body, is done with sin. Something about being done with sin has to do with suffering, physical suffering in the body. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on. Cliff, where are you going with this? Maybe, hey, Cliff, maybe Peter's describing Jesus' suffering on the cross. And Cliff's response is, no, it can't be his physical suffering because he hardly felt his physical suffering on the cross. It was his spiritual suffering that killed him. Isn't that right? So it can't be physical suffering, so it can't be the cross. Something else is going on. Well, what must it be? Uh, Cliff, could it be that he suffered? No, he can't be suffering from sin. He never sinned. What's he suffering from? He is suffering from the attempt to get him to sin. He's suffering from temptation. Not just those 40 days and nights in the wilderness with Lucifer going 24-7 at him, but every day of his life, he suffers. Physically, he's suffering from the temptation to sin. And then Cliff, in only Cliff's inimitable style, he writes these words. I'll put them on the screen for you. What's that, what's that have to do with you and me? I mean, look at, look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. You remember Hebrews 5, verse 8? And Christ, with loud cries and tears, begged the Father, and He learned obedience through what He suffered. You remember that? It can't be He learned obedience at the cross because it's too late to learn obedience then. He learned it through His life leading up to Calvary. Some kind of suffering is going on inside of Him, and He's making a choice. He's learning something. Our Savior is learning something. So here's Cliff. Pray. Sure, he says, of course. But of course, pray. Have, have your devotions. Witness. But, hold on now, when the devil is pressing you, when every cell of your body is crying out for sin, when your hormones, when your appetites, when your passions steam through your pores, I can't take any more of this. I'm going to have to give in. I'm going to have to give in. When that moment comes, now notice this, all you can do is claim God's promises for victory and grasp them in cold, naked faith. You will have terrible moments of agony. Your nerves will be stretched on end and you will think you are dying. Do you think that the One who holds you and me to this earth, do you think He's just going to stand back? I'll let Him go. I'm going to miss Him. Here go. Do you think he's going to stand back? Misery loves company. You can't lose her. With everything you have, pull her. Pull her. Cliff says it will feel like you are being stretched to the end. You know, somehow, sometime, somehow we've come to think, well, you know, I'll get over this. I'll get over this someday. It's not now. I'm young now. I'm middle-aged now. Or I'm a senior citizen now, but just before I get ready to die, I'll really work on this one. Why? Because it's tough work. Nobody said walking into eternity is a cakewalk. Look, if Jesus Himself had to suffer 
physically suffer, to say no to temptation. Do you think you and I, who are lessers of the God, would be granted an easier way? Impossible. So that's what Cliff is talking about. You will have terrible moments of agony. Your nerves will be stretched on end and you'll think you are dying. Now notice this. Then, just when you can't stand it anymore, the temptation, hallelujah, the temptation will pass. And through the power of Jesus and to His honor and glory, you will rejoice in your victories through the Lord, and he's quoting June 24 here, who was able to keep you from falling. Let me hear an amen to that. Do you understand what June 24 is saying? You can be kept from falling. When you go out tonight, you do not have to fall. It's not written into your genes. It's not written into your cards. You don't have to fall. Not tonight, not tomorrow, not, mo- not Monday, not Tuesday. You don't have to. Because if you have to, then God has been lying to us from the beginning. These seven imitation invitations aren't true. It's a hoax. You'll sin till you're dead. So you just embrace your sins. And hope for a Savior at the very end. That's not Revelation 14. They follow the Lamb. No lie in their mouth. Blameless lives. How do you get to be like Enoch? Just like Jesus. How did Jesus get to be like Jesus? He suffered. It was tough. Hey guys, here's what I'm saying. Some of you already know what God is going to want to start working on in your life. The moment we turned to this subject, something went on in your mind and a little voice said, this is what He's really talking about for you. You know immediately. You know now what it is God is, going to, God is asking of you. And by the way, you work for the church, you've been here for a hundred years, nothing from me, no. Those are the most embedded sins. The sins of pride and ego. Self-preservation. Those are the embedded sins. Almost in our DNA. But the moment the Spirit begins to speak and He's saying, hey, I'm talking about this. All I want you to know is that Jesus has been there ahead of you. And He's going to take you through. Whatever temptation you have suffered, He also has been tempted. Only He said no. When you and I have said yes, 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 all our lives, He said no. So He says, hey, I'm the one who can help you. A yes can't help you. But a no can help you. And I spoke no to the enemy. Let me give you the power. Everything inside of you will be crying out, screaming, give me that. Hold on to me. Hold on to me. I'll deliver you. What a God. He hasn't asked of us what He Himself has not endured Himself. And with that enduring, He's earned the right and He's gained the power to deliver us in the very same way. He will be through agony. Don't try to find a way without agony because that way goes straight down. Broad is the way. Wide is the path. And many there be that go that way. This way is tough. It's narrow. It's straight. You're going to climb up through through a needle of eye. You'll need to climb through the eye of a needle. But I'll be with you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't you ever give up. Don't listen to that taunt. You're living with your sins and you'll be stuck with your sins, boy, until Jesus comes. So just enjoy Him. That's a lie. That is a lie. All right, let me share a quotation with you and the story about Albert Einstein and I'm sitting down. This quotation, Karen and I came across, we're reading the little book Maranatha through for our, our uh, worships together came across these words. How should we live? We who live. Now, here's the practical how-to. How do I live in this hour of the judgment? Here we go. It's in your study guide. Words written 100 years ago. Closely examine your own heart as in the light of eternity. Now, this is good. This is going to make you want to say, Ooh, I don't want this. No, come on. Hold on. Closely examine your heart as in the light of eternity. Hide nothing from your examination. Search. Oh, search. As for your life, as if your life depended on it. Condemn yourself. Oh, I don't like doing that. Oh, come on. Grow up. All that means is admit, yep, this is true about me. Condemn, yeah, yeah, I am, yeah, yep, yep, that's me, that's me. Admit it. Condemn yourself. Pass judgment upon yourself. And then, oh, by faith, claim the cleansing blood of Christ to remove the stains from your Christian character. 
You're already a Christian. It's not like you have to do this to become a Christian. You're already a follower of Christ. He'll wash you clean. And now hold on. Here, here it gets a little more. Just presses in a little tighter now. Do not flatter or excuse yourself. Deal truly with your own soul. I learned something from Philip Yancey. Let me just tell you this. Philip Yancey, the brilliant evangelical uh, journalist and writer, his latest book, I believe it's still his latest, it's a book on prayer, came out two years, three years ago. But in this book, Philip Yancey made a point that has changed my prayer life, and I'm going to pass it on to you for what it's worth. Yancey says, and he was quoting C.S. Lewis at the time, Yancey says, you know what? Why don't we quit playing games with God? We act as if we've got to hide something from God so that He can't really see it. How are you doing today, Dwight? Fine. How things been lately in your life? Fine. Surprised you'd even ask. We act like we've got to kind of get all prettied up to go before God. Yancey says, do you know how, what, an, what idiocy that is? Please. Does God already know? Yes or no? Does He know everything about you and me? Yes or no? So if I'm trying to act like I am not, can He spot that instantly? But of course. So here's Yancey's point, and it's brought such a liberation for my own praying, and that is just be honest with Him. Just honest. God, you know, you, 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 did you, you read those thoughts, didn't you? Can you believe I thought that? God, please, what's going on in my life? I'm never growing. I'm stuck. You might as well tell him. You might as well tell him because he already knows. And it is in the admission that the heart is drawn into the embrace of God. Just tell me what you need. Tell me about your problem. Tell me your problem. Do you think he needs to know? No. Just tell me. It's in the telling that my heart is linked to him. I said, oh, I was kind of glad you recognized that. You do have a problem there. It's huge, by the way. But I'm glad you see it. Now, Dwight, here's the deal. You can try to deal with that problem as you have for years, or I'll deal with it. I need your permission, and I need you to please let go. You let go every new day and ask me, say, Oh, God, you've got to help me today. I promise you, I'll take care of you. I can get you from here to there. Trust me. Ladies and gentlemen, quit, let's quit playing games in our prayer life with God. Tell Him what you're struggling with. Anything you're struggling with, anything, tell him. That's, what's, that's this line. Do not flatter or excuse yourself. Deal truly with your own soul. And then here comes the, the glorious punchline. And then, as you view yourself a sinner, all right, self-examination. I know, I'm, I know I'm in trouble. As you view yourself a sinner, fall all broken at the foot of the cross. That's where you go. Jesus will receive you there. All polluted as you are, He will wash you in His blood. He will cleanse you from all pollution. And He will make you fit for the society of heavenly angels in a pure and harmonious heaven. Hallelujah. Calvary, ladies and gentlemen, Calvary is not only about pardon. Calvary is about power. Go to the foot of the cross. Stay there. Because when you're doing self-examination, and I forget who said this. Maybe Was there somebody famous who said this line? A self. Oh, how's it go? Oh, an unexamined, that's it. An unexamined life is not worth living. I don't want to know. Don't talk to me about me. I don't want to know. An unexamined life is not worth living because you're fooling yourself. You're not really living. You're fooling yourself. It's all a charade. Examine. Say, God, today. Today, tell me, what do you see? What do you see in my successful life out in the community? I've been years in my career, God. What's going on in my life? How come there's no change? Take a look at me today. Do it always, always at the foot of the cross. So the moment the conviction comes, you're right where you get forgiven. Always at the foot of the cross. Stay close to Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. That's it. Oh, will I have to bow often at the foot of the cross and weep over my sinfulness? You betcha. In fact, get this. The closer you come to Jesus, the more you will see to repent of, the less you will feel like saying, I finally have gained all the victory, and the deeper will grow your self-examination. The closer you come to Jesus, the more you will find to repent of, and the deeper will grow your self-examination. And one by one, God is just saying, hey, good. Good, let me have that. Let me take that. God will bring you to your blamelessness in Christ Jesus. For He is able to keep you from falling 
Never sell him short. Never sell him short. He can do it. Suffer? Yeah. Pain? You betcha. But ladies and gentlemen, we're on the eve of eternity. Anybody here want to go home? Anybody here want to go home? Yeah. In Walter Isaacson's biography of, of Einstein, it's entitled Einstein, it's of Albert Einstein. He describes a moment when Albert Einstein was a little boy, and I'm indebted to my friend, my young friend, Sean Brace, who's pastoring in New England. And by the way, if you can ever get a hold of this journal, New England pastor, you preacher types especially, New England pastor, he and his dad are editing that journal. It's a wonderful journal. Uh, so Scott, I mean, uh, Sean wrote a, an editorial where he drew my attention to this line that I had just kind of skipped over when I was reading the biography. I'm still not through it. But this is Walter Isaacson's biography. He describes... Little Einstein receiving a gift from his mother that ended up becoming the gift of a lifetime. She gave him a violin. And his life was changed. Most people don't know that Albert Einstein was actually an accomplished violinist. In fact, you know, when he would be sitting in that laboratory, sitting uh, crunching his numbers, just trying to come up with those formulations, there would be times when he would push away from the calculations, pick up his little violin, and he would strum it. He would write music and just strum his violin. Something happened deep within him. He'd be released and he'd go back and he'd continue his studying. But when he was a boy, it all that love came when his mother gave him a violin. And like every mother, God bless our mothers, she insisted that he have violin lessons. At first, Isaacson writes, at first, the young Albert, he chafed at the mechanical discipline of the instruction. But then one day, young Einstein was exposed to Mozart's sonatas. Years later, reflecting on that boyhood discovery of Mozart, Einstein remarked, and here is his line, here is his line, Einstein remarked, I believe that love is a better teacher than a sense of duty, at least for me. I like that. Would you write it down? I believe that love is a better teacher than a sense of duty. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. If we imitate God and follow Jesus out of this sullen sense, i got to do this in order to get, to get saved, I'm telling you what, of all people on this planet, we ought to be the most pitied. The most pitied of all. But if out of joyful gratitude and love to Him who gave Himself for us, we choose to imitate God and follow Jesus, you know what? For you and me, it will be true. Love is a better teacher. Because hold on, love is the best teacher. That's why. You love Him. You love Him. And He'll love you back straight into this kingdom. You don't love Him, He'll love you back anyway. But you love Him. It'll be the best teacher. He will be the best teacher you have ever, ever had. Teach me, Father, what to say. Teach me, Father, how to pray. Teach me all along the way how to be like Jesus. I would be like Jesus. I would be like Jesus. Help me, Lord, to daily grow more and more like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? I know you do. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. I know you do. Stand with me and sing just this stanza. Just this stanza of that old gospel hymn. I love it. I would be like Jesus. I would be like Jesus. Help me, Lord, to daily grow more and more like Jesus.
sing that chorus again. sing it a cappella. able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages and now and forevermore. Let all the people say, Amen.